Hey friends, thanks for joining us at West Tonka at Bush Lake. If you're online, if you're gathered here in our Chanhassen campus, glad that we're together today. There's something powerful about coming together in whatever setting it is. How many of you are from Minnetonka? Just give a shout out. All right, seven of you, okay. <laughs> well, your team, your football team won this weekend, just letting you know. How many of you from Waconia? All right, a little stronger. Your team won this weekend too. How about Chaska? Yeah, your team won this weekend as well. Chanhassen. Oh, yes. That's because they are now the number one in their division. They won this weekend too. Pretty amazing to say the least. And the Gophers won as well. So we give it up for, for those celebrations. Carrie and I were in a gathering last night too. We went to the Lauren Daigle concert at Target Center. It was amazing. Went way too late, can I tell you? Man. But it was amazing. And they had this time of worship. I didn't want it to end. It was so compelling to be together and to have everybody, 15,000 people singing. And honestly, it sounded like everybody was singing in pitch. And I know that's not true. But it just <laughs> felt that way. It was just so beautiful. I didn't want it to end. And I think I worshiped God in my sleep all night. And then to come and be together with you this morning and our team and uh, out at West Tonka and Bush Lake. I think we all, West Tonka, Bush Lake it here. Let's give thanks to God for the privilege to worship the Lord together and the teams who lead us so faithfully every week. So grateful for that. Carrie and I are in a small group, another gathering. And uh, can I just confirm what, um, affirm what was said earlier. Join a geo group or small group. It just deepens friendship. It deepens your understanding, your learning about God and who he is when you share together. And in our small group this past week, we had one of those amazing, meaningful weeks in our gathering. And it got triggered by a question from A.W. Tozer in his book, um, The Knowledge of the Holy. And it created some very meaningful conversation. I thought, I'm sharing with you the statement that he gave to us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I go, why is it so important? Because it shapes our understanding of who we are and how we live, the decisions that we make and how we treat others and even look at others and how we approach God or not. What comes into your minds when we think about God? So let's put the question before. I'll give you a moment. What comes into your mind when you think about God in one word? What's the first word that comes into your mind? Got it? In our group experience, there was one person whose word was father. That is, she feels that he is with me, that he is wanting me to have peace in my life, that he's loving. I go, that is a great word to have in your head. Two in our group confessed that they had struggled from their early childhood. They're in a different place today, but in their childhood, the word that came to mind was judge or punisher because they sat under the teaching of a hellfire and brimstone preacher who created fear for them. And so oftentimes they live with fear or shame or guilt. Anybody come from that kind of background? Boy, did that stir up meaningful conversation for us. And mine was mercy. And mercy is the compassionate love of God for us. And it's how Christ met me. And that's why I chose that word, not a surprise to most of you, because I end most of my correspondence with the phrase, under the mercy, which I'm about to change to under the mercies, because his mercies are new every day. It's multiplied mercies that are given to us. And that's my word, because it's impacted me. 
I find in my life, because of the mercy of God for me, that I lean toward judging others less and meeting them more with mercy. That's the impact, how you view God in your life and your journey. And so we get to come before the presence of a God who I think has a natural bent as his first bent toward us as a heart of mercy. He meets us in that merciful place. So what other better place to come around the table to reinforce what you think about God as being merciful than to receive the bread and the cup, which we'll do at the end of the service. When the bread comes to your lips, taste mercy. When the cup comes to your lips, taste mercy. And that's what we're gonna do in our time together. But first I have some instructions. So this is an instructional message, which means that you're coming to school today. How you feeling? I hope you woke up out of bed going, I get to go to school, because some of you woke up out of bed when you're going to school going, I don't wanna go to school, but I want you to come to school and learn. Will you be willing to do that? Because um, something's happening here in our midst and we wanna give some energy and attention to it. And the reality is we have 30 years of, um, of ministry almost, but a diversity of people are coming. Right now we're experiencing a 30% growth from a year ago this time. So we have a lot of new people who are coming and they're coming with different backgrounds. We thought start the year with some orientation and instruction about things that are observed in churches, but they're applied differently. And we want you to understand how we apply it. And so I'm not here to offend any of our traditions. They're rich, they're beautiful, but I wanna bring clarity to why we practice what we practice. And when you come and come to the table, this is what you're doing. So when you leave here today, you'll have good clarity and understanding about that. And I'm so grateful myself that our identity in terms of being faith people is changing. Over the last 50 years, it's really extraordinary. And because I was alive 50 years ago, I know what was happening 50 years ago, and I know what's happening today. And I'm so glad that there's a change in terms of how we first identify ourselves as faith people. So when I was a kid and a teenager, it was common to identify people through their affiliations with their denomination. Oh, he's a Catholic. She's a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal. And so we created these boxes that oftentimes divided us. But I don't know if you realize that the movement of God across this land has almost been to say, like, of that. That isn't how you ought, you know, view yourself. That you ought be God followers and Christ followers in your life. That we are Christians first. And so we give less attention to those denominational identities. I was reminded of this most recently by worshiping at a Catholic parish because the priest there is a dear friend of mine. I had the Sunday free, and uh, I don't get those often, so I'm careful where I go, but I wanted to encourage him, so I, I go. He didn't know I was coming that day, and I sat, I was by myself over into the corner. I'm a bit introverted. I know you don't believe it, but I am. I was by myself, and he saw me from the pulpit, and I could not believe it, but he called me out. Oh, I see Pastor Joel from Westwood Community Church is with us today, and my heart started to do Have you ever been called out in a place and you didn't expect it? And I just, I panicked, and I go, what's he gonna have me do? Now, I wasn't prepared to do anything. I, didn't want, I just wanted to be there to encourage him. But man, my heart flipped and I just hung in there for the rest of the service. And boy, thank God he didn't call me up to do anything. But I, I was surprised too, because you know, 500 years ago, we were killing each other. We were ch chopping each other's heads off, Catholics and, and, uh, and Lutherans and other people of different backgrounds. But here he's calling me out. So I said to him afterwards, I said, could you have done that 25 years ago to call out a Protestant pastor of a church in your Catholic parish during worship? He goes, never, never. But today, 
He's got Protestants coming to the Catholic Church. We have Catholics coming to the Protestant Church, and we're mixing together because God said enough. Stop identifying yourself as Catholic Presbyterian. Just help me out a little bit. How many of you come out of a Catholic background? Can I see your hands? Yeah, good number of you. How many of you come from a Lutheran background? See, I figure in Minnesota, I'm, I'm covering 75% of us right there. Okay, <laughs> that's true. How many come out of a Presbyterian background? Okay, Baptist background? Okay, Pentecostal background? Uh, how about no background? You didn't come out any kind of church background at all. Oh, yeah. It's great to have you with us. And we come together at the foot of the same cross, and I'm so glad we get to do this because this is what God wants for us. But when we come together, we also have our different, we have 2,000 years of history. So that's why I want you to put on your learning cap. I'm gonna walk through an instructional message around communion in a moment. Um, we call it communion because there's a union with God and us through faith, but it's also called the Lord's Supper. Some of you called it the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. They're all beautiful expressions. I refer to it today in my message as the Lord's Supper. And I wanna tee it up with a question, or with questions like I did last week on baptism just for easier structure and for things to hang together. And the first question is simply this, why do we practice the Lord's Supper? And thankfully, we have agreement on this one. It's because of Jesus. He instructed two ordinances or sacraments to be observed in the local church. Baptism, which we covered last week, is that one-time place of being baptized where you're, you're symbolizing, it's a sign of your identity. I am a Christian and your allegiance. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But then he gave a second ordinance or sacrament called the Lord's Supper. And it is a sign of your continuing fellowship with the Lord in the duration of your life. So we keep coming back to this given table. The instruction was given to us by Jesus himself the evening before he was crucified. And I think about that. When you're on your deathbed, what are the words that are going to come out of your mouth? And Jesus landed something for us that would carry on from generation to the next generation. And this is how Matthew records it. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So it will continue on and on and on until he returns again. So why? Because of Jesus. That lands the first question. But then it moves into a little bit more of the controversy around the question, how is Jesus Christ present in the Lord's Supper? This has been debated through the centuries. 2,000 years, there are three primary views. I'm gonna to touch on each of those views. They're all important. I just wanna say, my goal is not to offend. You know, I say the gospel is offensive, we are not to be offensive. I just wanna bring clarity and hope it brings some perspective to the divergent views that we have in our background, how it was forged in history, but then why we practice it the way we do at Westwood. So you have to start with the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view is called transubstantiation. Trans meaning to change. Substantiation, substance, to change the substance so that the bread and the wine and the mass actually change into the substance of Christ's body and blood. This teaching was introduced to the Catholic Church in 1215 AD at the Council of Lateran. 
And immediately it received resistance from other Catholics and reformers. So understand that the reformers, the Reformation, many of them were Catholics who had concerns about what was happening in the local church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And they took issue with this right away. And it didn't take long, within a couple of centuries, many of them divided from this particular view because we've had a thousand years and we've never taught it this way that when you take the bread and the cup, it actually turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they took issue because when Jesus gave the instruction, he was using figurative language from their vantage point. When he talked about, I am the door, I am the vine, this is what Jesus did. He would teach to communicate a lesson. He was there live in the flesh and blood and they were partaking of the bread and the cup as a symbol um, of, of their journey from the vantage point of these particular reformers. And then they went on to argue with the fact that um, in the journey of the history of the Hebrew people and in scripture itself, it's forbidden to actually eat the flesh and drink the blood of, of humans. You can't do that in the, the Hebrew tradition, which makes sense. And then they took issue as well with this given verse. Scripture says, he died to sin once for all. If he died on that cross once and for all, why do we need to see him die again with a literal body and blood being um, poured out again? So they took issue. And yet, um, even with all the resistance, the Catholic Church has retained that teaching um, in their journey that they believe the bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. That's one primary view. Those reformers, many were Catholics, specifically you are most familiar with Martin Luther, who by the way, when he died, was still a Catholic. It was Melanchthon who would start this tradition called Lutheranism, and, uh, and I, I think he would have rolled over in his grave uh, knowing what was before because he tried so hard to bring unity back into the local church. But there is a Lutheran view, which is a significant view in history, and that's called consubstantiation, con being the prefix that means with or in, Substantiation meaning substance, that somehow Christ is with and in the substance. The bread and the wine are not transformed into the body and blood of Christ, they said, but the physical body of Christ is mysteriously present in, with, and under the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. I come from a Lutheran heritage, and I'm grateful that I, I did. I, I went through three years of confirmation. I know that they've reduced it to two and sometimes one, I just did the whole three, I want you to know that, and I loved it. <laughs> not, a lot of my classmates did not love it, but I loved it. I'm a history nut, so I got totally into the confirmation experience. But in that experience, we were given an analogy that was really quite helpful, saying that Christ's body, this, what, what it means that the elements are contained um, in the bread and the cup is that Christ's body is, is in the bread in the same way, and the analogy was water is in a sponge. The water is not the sponge, but the sponge contains water. It's in, it's with, and that's the understanding that was given to us then. But many of the reformers now, who were Catholics who were protesting, and some who were Lutherans who were protesting, said, no, I, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
There's a transaction that happens. The Holy Spirit indwells you, and the Holy Spirit mediates the very person of Jesus. So why would we need the elements of bread and cup for somehow Jesus to be in that when he's in us already? And that third view is called the symbolic view. So most other Protestants, not all, embrace this view that the bread and the wine symbolize the body of Christ and that he is spiritually present. And um, this is Westwood's practice. We embrace a symbolic view. We think that the presence of Jesus Christ is magnified where two or three are gathered in his name and we come around this table. We experience it spiritually, but symbolically is the call. And so the elements of the bread and the cup, um, in this case, do not change into the body and the blood of Christ and are not contained in the bread and the the, the, the cup that we drink of, but rather it's symbolic of the presence of the Lord. And that's how we practice it, just to bring clarity to you in your journey. And that just leads to the third, and I think the most important question that we want to give energy to, and that is, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? It symbolizes something here that is, um, I want to put twofold here. I think there's the meta picture of what it symbolizes. And then there's the day-to-day reality of what the Lord's presence means to us and we're reminded of when we come to this table. You've likely not heard the teaching around the the meta-narrative around it, but it's really quite important because it's speaking to the past, the present, and the future of our fellowshipping with and eating with our Lord in his presence. And it's got a past to it. There's a hyperlink to the past in that it's a callback to Genesis where we find that God put Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden filled with abundance where they could experience fellowship and eat in the presence of the Lord with fullness. That's the hyperlink back in history. But we know that sin broke that relationship, that fellowshipping, that eating with the Lord in all of his presence. We were marred by sin, but with Christ coming, by faith in him, we're remade into that experience of the Lord's presence now being with us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we come together in that given place of being in his presence, God is in our midst in the present moment. We're rejoicing around the bread and the cup as we will do at the conclusion of our service today. Oh, thank you, God, that we get to enjoy your presence and be in your presence. So it has that symbolic presence for the present, but also for the future. It's a hyperlink to the future in the sense that um, it's a call out for what is still before us when we will be able to fellowship and eat in the full presence of the Lord face to face. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians. And Revelation tells us about the great marriage feast of the land, the great supper, where we will all come together in fullness in the presence of the Lord. But we get to partake in anticipation of that and even in the experience of it through the presence of the Spirit in us. Now, that's the big picture. But you break it down to the reality of the day-to-day and its impact. It's so beautiful and wonderful and meaningful. I want to be sure you understand and receive it the way we believe Jesus intended it to be received, that the Lord's Supper symbolizes two things. It symbolizes specifically um, his death. And so we come into uh, Corinthians, and we were reminded, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So we're proclaiming the Lord's death, but specifically, what are we proclaiming in the Lord's death when we take the bread and the cup and we put it to our lips? First of all, we're proclaiming, we're affirming the purpose of Christ's coming. It's his purpose, that Jesus came to die. That's why he came, to die for your sins and mine so we might live. When we come to this table, we remember the sacrificial, voluntary, joyful coming of our Lord into our lives. Oh, it's such an important part of what we believe and what we experience together. But then also, it's not just his purpose, it's also an affirmation of his love. And do you ever wonder why John 3.16 is the most popular verse in all of the world that you'll see it on a placard at a football game or whatever? It's because I think of how it begins. You help me with this. For God so loved the world that he sacrificially, joyfully, voluntarily gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have life everlasting. He did it to give us this life. He did it to affirm a love. The compassionate mercy of God that comes into the messiness of our backyard to give us life today and for all eternity. And I'm so glad he does. It's to affirm the purpose of Christ, but also to affirm that we get to participate in the benefits of Christ's death. It's not just remembering and proclaiming Christ's death, but we get to participate in the benefits of Christ's death. Yes, the forgiveness of sins. Yes, a right and dynamic, um, vital living relationship with the God who created us, but also to nourish us. We come here to be reminded over and over again that, that the Lord nourishes our soul. And in fact, we find the biblical anchor in that in John's gospel, chapter six, Jesus says, unless you eat and drink, you have no life in you. Whoever eats and drinks abides in me and I in you, and you will live because of me. And so just as food nourishes the body, so it is that the bread and the cup that we partake it at the table nourishes our soul because our soul needs it. And it needs it every day. His mercies are new every day. Great is his faithfulness. He taught us to pray. Give us this um, daily bread because we need the bread of the life of the Lord every day. So how specifically does it nourish us? Can I just do a refresher from a month ago when we came around the table and I shared how the nourishment happens. And I talked about calling back to that evening before Jesus died, sitting around the table, and they were celebrating the Passover feast, remembering that they were set free from bondage from Egypt as slaves, and now they're new people coming into their own promised land that they never want to forget that goodness. Well, if you're a Jew sitting around the table, um, everything on the table has significance and it's symbolism, and it's all symbols again. And there are four cups around that table um, of the Passover feast. And the four cups all speak to nourishment, the nourishment that we need in our lives. The the cup, by the way, in the Hebrew culture is, um, it's a metaphor or analogy of how our story is intertwined with God's and God's story is intertwined with ours. And so you find that the, the first cup is the cup of presence. He's saying, I am with you. Does that nourish your daily walk to know that he is with you? A life with God versus without God? Oh, it's deep nourishment. I'm with you. The second cup is provision. I see you. I know your need. 
and I'm going to meet your need according to my will and my way. Does that give you nourishment to your soul, to know that he sees your need, he understands, and his compassionate mercy, he's going to come and meet that need in some measure? I pray that it does. Or the third cup is the cup of promise. I am for you, not against you. And if you wonder sometimes, God, are you for me? Because, man, life is really hard here. Always know that he is for you, never against you. There are forces that are against you, but God Almighty, revealed in Jesus Christ, is always for you. Could I get an amen for that? Just amen. He is for you. You have to put that into your head. In fact, you know what Jesus is doing right now, in this moment? Scripture tells us he's interceding on your behalf. Well, that nourishes my soul. Does it yours? He's cheering you on. When I was preparing, I thought about um, my first, when I was in high school, I ran cross-country track. And um, it, was, it was a great sport. We had to run, and the races were 2.3 miles. My sister was a cheerleader. And the very first meet that we had, I was so nervous and kind of excited, but more nervous than excited. Just wanted it to be over with, but really wanted to do it. Have you ever been in that paradoxical kind of position? And my sister's there, all of us are lined up against our competition, and the gun goes off, we start to run, and my sister is uh, cheering us on, but she's yelling out my name. Joel, you can do this, keep running. And I'm totally jazzed. Adrenaline's going, I take off, I lead the pack for a solid 10 minutes, which in cross country, paces everything. <laughs> and I'm about halfway through this thing, I'm sucking air, and I am no longer even in the middle of the pack. But I come around a corner, and she's not with the squad, but she's there by herself, and she's cheering me on. Joel, you can do this. Keep going. And I feel my strength is lessening, but it's my sister. I put it up a gear, and I keep going. But she can't be everywhere. I pass her. I come around another bend. There she is again, cheering me on. Joel, you can do this. Finish the race. I go, oh, God, help me finish the race. <laughs> it was just, I ran differently after the first meet. I'll tell you that, but I go, Wow, we need cheerleaders in our life. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying on your behalf. Because sometimes we feel confident about what we're about only to find that we're weak need the next day. Our news comes to us, and so we're undone. And he is our great intercessor. And then that fourth cup is an important one. He sets us free, and I'm so glad that he does. He sets you free, friends. This is nourishment, isn't it, to your soul? You got a cheerleader who sets you free. And I just know, um, the Lord placed it in my heart even in prayer before I came this morning, that there's at least one of you here dealing with a profound disappointment in your life. And there's another one who's dealing with a discouragement that just seems impossible. And there's another one who's just, you're so depressed you could hardly roll out of bed today and others had to help you make that decision. And there's someone here who's just dealing with an addiction and it's taking a hold of you. You hate it, you don't know what to do about it. But the Lord who is with you, who sees your need, who promises before you, promises also to set you free. That's what we get reminded of, the nourishment of the Lord around the beauty of this table where the mercy, the mercies of a compassionate God comes to meet us. There's more instruction in the scripture about coming around this table, and I wanna just briefly touch on a few of them. Paul 
brings out several things, and uh, you get to see, he's not very happy with the church of Corinth. Look what he says. In the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it, and I do too. We easily divide when he calls us to be unified. And then he continues, their issue, his issue, he's upset about their gatherings and how they do the Lord's Supper. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this. I mean, just what are you doing, he's saying. Those are pretty, pretty direct words, wouldn't you? I mean, I think about that. If Paul could write us a, a letter to Westwood, what would he say in it? When I read that, I get a little nervous about what he might say in it. But I, I know that he would say, oh, you're a loving church. Keep loving well. But we have this picture from him. What are you doing? I want to say a couple things around instruction. First of all, Paul is not upset about the frequency of their gathering or the frequency of coming to the table. We tend to get more uptight about that. Just last week, I had somebody say to me, why don't you practice communion every week? Because if you came from that tradition, that's your expectation, and it's unmet because we have a different practice. Well, it's because the scripture doesn't specify how frequently we come to the table, just that we do gather together in it. And, and so how often do we do it? We do it frequently, consistently, the first Sunday of the month. Is this the first Sunday of the month? It is the first. This is no longer September. Turn the calendar. This is the first Sunday of the month. We have it here. Can I just say this? Would you prioritize your calendars and all of your travels to be here for the first Sunday of the month? Because we will gather around this table. And the Lord will magnify his presence in a beautiful way. We encourage you to do that. And Paul says, as you gather together, you need to gather together for this given peace. But in how we apply that at Westwood, maybe different than your backgrounds, is we, we don't observe communion in our small group experiences. We don't observe communion at youth retreats or adult retreats. We hold it and we reserve it for this gathering, the body of Christ, because we're all together remembering and proclaiming his purpose and his love. We do that together as an encouragement. And so if he's not upset about that, what is he most upset about? He is upset about the fact couple of things that come into play here. First of all, Jesus is diminished. He's not magnified. That is, what he saw happening in this church was astounding to him, astonishing. That is, he saw that they were eating indulgently and drinking excessively. And so the bread and the cup got lost in the feast of all their coming together. And he says, Go do your house parties at your own personal homes, but not when you come together because this gathering is about the bread and the cup, about magnifying the person of Jesus, keep him at the center of it. That was the goal, which is why I think in many cases, why, I mean, I thought about this many times in my youth, like this is the feast of coming for the Lord's Supper. You have the bread and the cup because I think it was a reaction to what happened in the early church where they got their feast. By the way, when you're done here, you're going to go have brunch somewhere. Have a good time. But you're here, and we're going to elevate the simplicity of bread and cup. Jesus, he is with us, and he's for us. But also, he was upset that some were included, and not everyone is included. That is, 
The church did not have a building like we have today. They met in homes. Usually the wealthier homes had more space, so 10, 40, 50 people would come into a home, and usually the friends of those people would come, and they wouldn't wait for the others to come. They'd just jump in and start to eat. They didn't wait for a togetherness to be part of that journey. And unfortunately, the people who did come later oftentimes got little or nothing to eat around that feast that they had set up. It's a little like going to a wedding and you're the last table at the reception to be dismissed for the buffet line. And you get up there, lots of rice and no chicken. <laughs> that's what was happening here as well. And he says, it's not, that's not right. Wait for everybody to come together. We do this together. That is our practice. We all get the same. And some weren't even invited. And you know what that meant in the early church. It meant that the communion was closed to some and open to others. Are you familiar with closed communion and open communion? Have you heard of that in your church backgrounds along the way or in history? Some churches practice closed um, communion. That is, it's available for you to participate if you're a member of their association, their denomination, or local church, and there are dozens of them that hold that. You have to be a member of the local church. Or in the Roman Catholic Church, um, there's also a sense where you, you can't come and participate in the Eucharist, but you are included because they do provide a prayer, and I'm really glad that they do. But I have asked dozens of Catholics about this because I know if we were to die today and we're in the presence of the Lord, we'd be together and this represents our togetherness. Why can't we participate? I used to have issues around that. I no longer do because no one's been able to answer my question, but my friend, the Catholic priest, did. And he said simply, just like this, well, it's because you can't be loyal to Rome. I go, oh, that makes sense. See, in our history of 2,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church would hold up the authority of Scripture for life, faith, and practice, and the Pope. We come from a background that elevates the authority of life, faith, and practice from the scriptures, not to the Pope. That made sense to me. So I, I feel free in that, and I can be included through the blessing of prayer. Whether you agree or disagree, it does help give some energy. So let's come to this table, because it's such an important table to come to. And uh, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. But what do you think about God, first word that comes to your mind? I pray that it's mercy, that when the bread comes to your lips that you taste mercy, and when the cup comes to your lips that you taste mercy. We have this practice at Westwood where we hold high the cup. You notice that at the end of our communion experience? You might like, and why do you do that? Because it's not in the scripture that we do that. I'm just gonna say it happened um, when we were worshiping in the high school. I was teaching on Jesus, his love, his sacrificial um, death for us, his merciful compassion that would meet us. And sometimes when I'm teaching, I'm so caught up in it. I was undone. It wasn't planned, it wasn't scripted, but in this moment, it's like I didn't have words, I was emotional, I have moments like that when I'm teaching the word of God, it just overwhelms me. And all I said is, could we just lift the cup and honor Jesus Christ? And we did. It was one of the most moving experiences in, in the, the teaching I've ever had. And we've done that at every communion service since then. It's an honor moment. He is worthy of our love, glory, honor, and praise. And so, friends, if you don't have faith, please do. Before we come to this table, say, Lord Jesus, I receive you into my life as Lord and Savior. I confess I'm wayward. I want to come home today. 
and see your love and your purpose. Would you join me and let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for the gift, the gift, the gift of this love given to us in Jesus, this compassionate mercy that meets us in the messiness of our backyard. And we think, I'm not worthy to come to this table to partake, but that's the very point of coming. We're not worthy and you meet us right here and you give us hope, you give us love, you give us purpose. So, Lord, we come around this table to remember and never forget your purpose came to die for my sin, our sin, to assure us that we are in your mighty right hand, sealed in love today and forever. Nourish our souls as we remember your mercy to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.